Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Tom Quinn, Analysis and Insights Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. 2020 was almost a watershed year with huge focus on green recoveries and energy transition. 2021 will be the year for action. This is a general theme of my predictions for the offshore wind industry that I made at the beginning of this year. Six months on, I'm joined by Gavin Smart, Head of Analysis and Insights at ORE Catapult, to discuss just how accurate our predictions have been so far and what the run-up to COP26 and the remainder of 2021 has in store for offshore renewable energy developments. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Okay, so as you said, six months in, you're ready for your now regular grilling? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Last year, our predictions were pretty much bang on. This year, we're halfway through. We're not looking too bad. Maybe we need to be a bit more bold and ambitious for our future predictions. Let's see how we go. So we can go through our um, the topics that were covered in your blog one by one and have a bit of a think about what has happened versus what we what we said and, and what you expect to come next. Starting off then with US offshore wind, what's happened there then? Uh, well, we've got a new president who's making waves. That's been a really big step. Um, the Biden administration has, the best thing you can say about it is it's it's different from the Trump administration, but we've seen some proper concrete support for offshore wind coming out of uh, some policy announcements there. The biggest and, and driving one being a new target of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. It looks like we've got a, a bit more in common again in terms of what, what people hope is the overall political theme, I guess. So, I mean, un- underneath that, not purely an energy play, I guess. That's right. And this is where we're starting to see some more parallels with what's happening in the UK with the sector deal. Uh, a lot of the focus has been on creating jobs. And in the US, that's union jobs. But there's also an angle of, uh, and it's tied into this, of investing in American infrastructure and ports to uh, enable them to actually deploy this this 30 gigawatts. So it's all about domestic supply chain and local content. And then the final bit of, of that puzzle is also to try and develop and support research and development. And there's been a particular focus there on collaboration and, and data sharing as well. So it sounds like um, a bit of a joined up approach, maybe having learned lessons from from what's happened in offshore wind in, in other jurisdictions already. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's it's great to see some very bold ambitions and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And in fact, we, we've already seen some of the results of this. So Vineyard Wind, it's received its federal approval. So we're expecting that project to get sanctioned sometime in the second half of this year. Uh, so that will come online in, in 2023 and, and probably finish being commissioned in 2024. So that's the first one. The next one that we think might be in line is, is Ocean Wind, which is in New Jersey, and that's a 1.1 gigawatt wind farm. So a lot of the focus has been on East Coast to start with. The question there then, what about the West Coast? Yeah, yeah. What about the West Coast? So the West Coast, California is the main focus area there. The difficulty with the West Coast is it's, it tends to be deeper water, so it's going to require floating wind. But as we're seeing floating wind take off, it's much more likely that we're going to start seeing projects getting developed uh, over there. The, the big barrier, though, in the West Coast and, and in California was the Department of Defense, which had effectively ring-fenced some big areas and were holding up any permitting. 
Now, the Biden administration has managed to come to an agreement and open up some of those areas for development. So there's two sites um, that have been identified, which could, if fully developed, we could have five gigawatts of mostly floating wind. It's about half of what's required for California to meet its zero carbon uh, electricity goals. But it's, it's definitely a step in the, in the right direction. There are some barriers. It's going to require significant investment in, in local ports and all the rest of the supply chain to, to get that going. I suppose, at least with his uh, you know, track record of being progressive in not just energy, but uh, most things, you'd think California, of a lot of places, might uh, pull out all the stops to actually get this done. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting as um, you know, it has been a front runner in a lot of renewable energy and climate goals. I'm always quite surprised that it's taken so long to get this across the line. And if I can kind of pull you back a wee bit to the, the industrialization side of things, which you mentioned about, you know, the job creation together with the rollout of uh, offshore wind. So is it something which, um, which we both spotted in the news was uh, related to vessels and the Jones Act? Do you want a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Jones Act is, is interesting. It's um, at its core trying to protect U- U.S. shipbuilding jobs. The way it's implemented is potentially quite old-fashioned, but effectively you're not allowed to supply services or or goods to a U.S. port in a vessel that is not built, owned, and operated by uh, U.S. companies. So the issue there is when you're trying to develop a large-scale offshore wind farm is you need installation vessels that have large cranes. These are 250 to $500 million vessels, so they're huge investments. And you can't just borrow one from the European market uh, because it breached the Jones Act. I guess that's, that's been one of the barriers to developing offshore wind in, in the US. But now we're starting to see um, some vessels being built. They estimate that the administration estimates that they need around four to six new vessels to meet their 2030 goals. We know that there's one specifically um, being commissioned uh, by Dominion Energy and you were showing off previously in our conversations offline that um, you can actually pronounce this one. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the vessel that they've commissioned? Well, no, I didn't say I'd pronounce that. I said we need to get our Greek colleagues to help us with it. But I think it's Charybdis, which was a Greek mythological um, marine beast of some, of some, of some form. Interestingly, it's, it's been developed with sea jacks, who also have other vessels that are named after Greek mythological creatures. So this is going to be yeah the first Jones Act compliant installation vessel with a Greek name with a Greek name and and interestingly um, it's required about ten thousand tons of steel and the big news story or the big um, gold star is that it's been supplied by U.S. manufacturers. So again, this comes back to the focus on on local content and local jobs, especially in things like the steel industry, which, which um, may be struggling. So things have moved in the right direction, as we were all hoping, and it sounds like the second half of the year is going to see a bit more in terms of project specifics. That sounds very positive for this year in the US. Yeah, that's right. And they they have got their longer term goals of over 100 gigawatts by 2050, which again is actually fairly well in line with what a lot of people are predicting for for the UK. So if I may, I'd like to kind of drag you back a wee bit closer to home and talking about the the UK offshore pipeline which you had written in your blog was was going to grow and that was kind of focused around the Scotland leasing round funnily enough up here in Scotland 
but also a mention about round four in, in England and Wales. So what have been the key developments there from your point of view, Tom? Yeah, well, we ended up getting this a bit back to front. So Scotland, we thought, was going to close by the end of March, but that got a little bit hijacked by the round four announcements and awards. So Scotland, it was delayed. We now have applications due in the middle of next month. We can still see some awards being made by the end of the year, if it takes roughly four months after after the applications are made. And that is going to be potentially up to 10 gigawatts um, in Scotland. So potentially up to 10 gigawatts. And our colleague, Anthony Gray, actually wrote a, an analysis and insights paper earlier in, in this year, looking at the potential types of foundations there. And I think one of the things coming across was that we could see a lot of floating wind projects coming out of Scotland. Maybe that's what people are expecting, but I think when you actually see the numbers in Anthony's paper, it's quite stark, um, you know, the amount of deep water there is there. So I think that's going to be interesting to see what comes out. But you mentioned Scotland having been delayed. So, of course, I, I know the answer to this, but do you want to expand a little bit on why the round was delayed? Like I said, it comes back to the round four Crown Estate leasing, uh, where we had some option fees that were going to be bid on. Now, what happened was that the bids that were that were placed were much higher than we'd anticipated, and I think that, that many had anticipated. And this made the Scotland and Crown Estate Scotland think that maybe they're leaving some money on the table effectively, potentially not getting enough value out of Scottish leasing rounds. So in round four, we saw between about 70 and 150,000 pounds per megawatt of capacity. Yeah, some huge option fees. This is going to run into hundreds of millions of pounds in fees for some developers. And now for Scotland, they had a cap on, it was on an area basis. They've revise that, they've increased the cap for these fees. They're still going to be a lot lower than for round four, maybe at least a third what the round four fees are. So the the option fees eventually coming out of Scotland, as you say, going to be lower um, than what had been bid for round four in England and Wales. But I think that it kind of shows, I think, that Crown Estate Scotland have have taken a view on the relative value of, of the sites, you know, due to deeper waters sometimes trickier seabeds and and overall higher transmission charges in Scotland. But I suppose also shows, you know, their continued ambition to stimulate competition among developers, maybe bring in some new players, not pricing out small players with big option fees, but also looking to develop more of the supply chain locally as well. Yeah, that's right. And like you said, Anthony, in his paper, said that there's likely to be a lot of floating wind here. So we don't want to stifle um, innovation and, and potentially new designs of floating wind by having very high option fees, which leaves a small profit margin for developers. Uh, absolutely. So one other thing that uh, we had in the blog was looking at support for marine power and potentially ring-fenced support for this. Yeah, so Bayes have recently announced that the allocation round four or AR4 should open in December this year. So I think we can expect CFDs to be awarded around April or May 2022. Now, the allocation round budget and other fine details are still being worked on, but we are supporting the the Marine Energy Council in quantifying the amount of revenue support needed or different levels of capacity and strike price ceilings. So certainly there's information being fed in to, to help understand the implications of doing some kind of minima um, or ring fence in the allocation round. But I guess we, we'll need to see how that plays out in terms of how Bayes see it fitting in with the bigger picture. 
Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I guess we've spoken about some innovative technologies. Uh, floating wind keeps coming up and it's a bit of a theme here, isn't it? We had it in the US on the West Coast. We're talking about it in Scotland, leasing grounds. So we obviously had to mention it in, a, in our blog. Oh, yeah. And, and as I was going to say, conveniently, it also relates to AR4 and budget pots. In the blog, you know, you'd mentioned about ambitions for at least one gigawatt of floating wind in the UK by 2030 you know, talks a bit about Scotland and what was happening off Wales. So what have you seen coming through in, in reality in the last few months? The, the recent news was Wave Hub, which is down in uh, the Celtic Sea, purchased by Hexacon, which are a, a floating wind developer that um, have a very innovative two turbine on one platform design. That's interesting. They're going to be looking at, at developing that and deploying their, their new platform. It's because it's a two turbine design. I'm sure there's, um, you know, people out there that look at it and are not convinced. But um, I think it's quite cool to see something that's even, you know, further away from mainstream going out there. It means that you can spend nearly twice as much on a foundation as long as you still you're not missing any of the efficiencies from having the the turbines sited so close together. Oh, it'll definitely be interesting to see. So you mentioned that WaveHub's down, kind of, so it's off the, the coast of Cornwall, it's down near the, the Celtic Sea, um, but there's other interesting stuff happening there, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Crown Estate has, um, has started work on you know a new leasing opportunity for a large or, well, 300 megawatt maximum floating wind project in the Celtic Sea. I think this has been quite interesting because it means it shows that the Crown Estate isn't just focused on you know the large Dogger Bank areas but also looking at, at how they can support and develop uh, new technology and, and floating wind. I know what you mean. It feels very positive, especially given the fact that they, they went out and consulted on it late last year, you know, about what, what should we be doing. So one, it was positive that they had the consultation. And then secondly, extremely positive that, you know, based on the feedback, these additional opportunities have arisen to do more, I was going to say, test and demonstration type stuff. Depending on, on where you sit on this, you'll say that the floating wind projects that go out there at 300 megawatts are far greater than, than a test and demonstration opportunity. But that really feels that that's a step forward. I feel like we have got some catching up to do in the UK with, with floating wind. One of the other nearby big projects is the Highwind Tampin project that is going to be powering some offshore oil and gas platforms in, in Norway. And that's been coming along fairly quick. So Tampin, as you said, it's a floating wind project to, to power offshore oil and gas field and of course we've got a lot of UK-based um, North Sea oil and gas. Should we be thinking more seriously about um, having our own floating wind projects out there powering the, the North Sea basin? Yeah I think that there is an opportunity here it's not without its challenges but there are enough oil and gas fields with long enough lifespans or re remaining life which are currently using you know diesel or, or burning gas for their power which could be partially or, or potentially even fully supplied by offshore wind. The UK does have relatively high carbon emissions per barrel of oil or, or oil equivalent produced. So it, it is something that is worth targeting. I'm not sure if we're confident enough to say that we'll see something like that go forward in the second half of this year, but maybe we should start seeing a bit more appetite for the, the test and demonstration of, of that kind of project. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of pressure on oil and gas companies lately. That's been in the news in the last couple of weeks. We've seen um, Chevron having some activist investors, getting them to report on you know, scope two, scope three emissions. We've seen ExxonMobil lose a couple of people on their board, again, to activist investors. There is a lot more pressure on these oil and gas companies. 
the, the US companies tend to be a little bit further behind, but even in the UK, we've seen Shell being taken to court over, over how they report on their emissions and, and whether they're legally binding. So yeah, there's been some real, um, you could call it progress or at least movement on that front. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, in a way, you know, as, you, as you've kind of mentioned there, it's, it's been a bit of the year of the, the majors moving into offshore wind, especially thinking about the round four leasing auction results. And I'm not sure we, I'm not sure we saw it coming in such a big way right now, but um, it, it seems to be all coming together. Yeah, that's right. And one of the big bidders was, was Total, who are now Total Energies after their rebrand. The rebrand was interesting. It was really uh, showing that they're focusing on energy transition and it's trying to nail their colours to the mast a little bit. So Total Energies, they've got stakes in Seagreen One. They, they've got a large stake in the Erebus floating project in the Celtic Sea. So exciting things happening everywhere offshore. But of course, to make everything happen, we need uh, grid strengthening. We need, we need the right um, transmission network, which is something that you mentioned in your blog. Part of this was about the offshore transmission review, thinking about energy islands and storage. So what are the most exciting things that you've seen happening over the last few months? For me, the energy islands are, are really interesting. Uh, I used to live in Dubai, where they specialise in building islands in the sea. Not always for specific purposes, it seems, just because they can do it. It at least shows you know, proof of concept it's possible to do. The Persian Gulf is a little bit calmer than the North Sea, but it should still be possible. So Denmark have progressed with their various projects. The first phase of this is looking at three gigawatts of offshore wind, all tied into a central island in a what they call a, a hub and spoke, so a bit like a bicycle wheel. So that's three gigawatts to start with potentially by the middle of next decade. So it's a long way off, but they're at least getting the ball rolling. And ultimately, they're, they're looking at 10 gigawatts of wind to be tied into one or two of these islands. There's a lot of benefits to this. It means that you're far away from, from shore, from uh, the market, which means you need a cable, but you're close to you know what could be ports on these islands. So effectively, your operations and maintenance might be simplified by, by designing it in this way. So you get those extra benefits. So you're saying effectively use it as a, like an own embase. Um, so rather than having to transit to the original shore, you've, now, you've created a new shore in a bunch of ports as well. Yeah, that, that's right. And the, the aim is to supply the whole of Denmark with offshore wind. The excess power they generate that can then be exported you know, through interconnectors. But they're also looking at the potential for uh, producing green hydrogen from seawater. And that's quite an interesting one. If we end up seeing the hydrogen uh, market developing, you could easily ship hydrogen from a hub like that. So that's hydrogen that you brought up there. I guess you can't go too far without mentioning hydrogen these days. Anything else interesting with hydrogen? Those projects were for very large-scale hydrogen projects um, in, in a decade or more. A bit closer to home and a bit, <laughs> a bit sooner, we've got the Whiteley Wind Farm, which is fairly close by Glasgow. So there's plans, it's been, been approved uh, for development of a 20 megawatt electrolyzer, which would produce around eight tonnes a day of hydrogen from, from Whiteley. And it's been combined with a solar and battery storage system. And I guess the aim here is to run the electrolyzers at high utilisation to make sure that they're being run efficiently. That would be interesting to see the interaction because you said there, it's, um, so it's based at a wind farm. It's going to incorporate solar and a battery together with an electrolyzer. So all the ingredients are there in one place already. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, for me, the most interesting bit about this project is the integration of different systems, because we know to reach net zero, we need to have a combined approach that does a little bit of everything. So this is a real proof of concept for that. And the other interesting bit for me is around the hydrogen markets, the local hydrogen markets, because initially green hydrogen is likely to supply buses in Glasgow, supplying the public transport sector maybe also looking at uh, at freight if we end up with hydrogen trucks and then who knows what might happen afterwards if you have a hub there producing hydrogen we might end up seeing a, a market created for all sorts of other uses yeah i think it's the we talked before about the development of the technology push and the market pool and and developing them kind of at the right pace that, that it will actually move in the way we want it to yeah, that's right. And and it all comes down to how we kind of manage intermittency from wind farm. And and again, it comes back to the first point you made about grid constraints and, and auto regime changes. Maybe you can go into a bit more detail about what's being proposed there. This is a hard one to cover off quickly because there's so much, so much happening and it's uh, such a crucial part. But briefly, the National Grid, they published their offshore coordination phase one report just in December off the back of a stakeholder consultation. And it's well worth a read. Much of the analysis and findings focus on the additional savings and benefits of moving to a a more coordinated offshore grid by 2025 rather than 2030, which is a positive in itself, you know, thinking that the base case is coordinated grid by 2030 rather than not at all. A couple of key takeaways. Well, there's quite a few, but um, speeding up the offshore integration will save money in the long term. And I think that could potentially put the target of 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 um, at risk. So that kind of illustrates the, the regular trade-off that you see in big infrastructure projects between what's fundamentally right to make things sustainable against what works in the short term. Another thing was in order to get the benefits of the faster integration without risking near-term targets, we're going to have to get even more innovative Um, So that's innovation in how projects are developed and set up commercially, as well as further technology development in things like interconnection and HVDC circuit breakers. Uh, And it also means we're going to have to collaborate even more between industry, government and grid operators and other stakeholders just to keep all the moving parts moving at the same pace and in the same direction. And actually one, one other thing, this all brings home the complexity in coordinating all this. And that's that the recommendations included in National Grid's 2020 Network Options Assessment Report, so just tail end of last year, that included proceeding with £14 billion of investment. And that already looks like it won't be enough for what's being proposed. So it just shows you how fast the the goalposts move in in this industry. I told you I'd struggle to keep it brief, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah, but like you said, there's a lot of detail in there. That's uh, interesting stuff. Well, if I can just... Take us back a bit um, to supply chain. We talked about this in the context of the US and you mentioned the UK sector deal as well. So last year, the UK government pledged £160 million of support for upgrades. So what's happened with, with that? Does the money still sit in there in a pot or is it being used? Yeah, well, we've seen some of it used so far. We've seen about uh, it's £95 million invested or, or pledged to ports. 75 million to Abel Marine, which is on the on the Humber, and 20 million to Teesworks in Teesside. Uh, so these upgrades will, will allow more companies to invest in manufacturing facilities in the locations. So we've had GE announce construction of a blade facility at Teesside. That will really help um, cement its position as a, an anchor tenant in the area. 
and will hopefully attract more um, supply chain around it. So these are two of eight Freeports that have been announced around England. So these have all been awarded what's called Freeport status, which allows companies to come and invest and operate more tax efficiently and closer to a level footing with, with overseas competitors. So that's taken off a bit more in, in England, but um, how is Scotland proceeding there? Scotland has a similar scheme that it's developing at the moment, which they're calling green ports. It's effectively the same idea, a bit more of a focus on fair work and uh, those kind of requirements. Also, with the green in the name, you'd expect it to be more about sustainable growth, um, innovation as well. That is in development. They still need to get some approval from, from the UK government, but we'd expect to see this, this happening possibly by the end of this year as well. One other thing that we touched on so well, as we always do, technological innovation and the kind of things that you covered in, in the blog were around um, potentially seeing turbines larger than 15 megawatts, array cables growing beyond 66 kV, um, and maybe more going on with um, robotics and, and autonomous systems. So fill us in, where have we got to? At the start of the year, we had Festas announce development of their, their new 15 megawatt turbine, uh, which is planned to be tested, uh, or at least the prototype tested next year, and then serial production from 2024. You can think about it that the GE Halyard X started as a 12 megawatt turbine, and then fairly soon after that was uh, became a 13 megawatt, and it's now being made available as a 14 megawatt turbine. So it's fairly safe to assume that if SS announces a 15 megawatt turbine, that's a starting point for it. And we could see that grow to 16, 17 megawatts in fairly near term, maybe this decade. The only way is up really with, with turbines, isn't it? That's about the only thing we know for sure. Yeah, and, and I guess the question for me is, what can we make of these in, in, in the UK? What kind of role will the UK have in, in both developing these and researching them and testing, but also manufacturing? I think that's something we need to watch this space um, as we go forward, but uh, definitely we need to look at disruptive technologies and see what happens as we get even bigger with turbines. Yeah, we'll need a new uh, blade test facility as well. It's even longer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's always exciting for us, isn't it? Yeah, what does that look like? And yeah, crucially, how big do you make the next blade test facility? I mean, a few years ago, when we had our 100 metre blade test, you know, people were probably looking at it and saying, well, that'll do you forever. And already we're testing a blade that's 107 metres long. So who knows what the next step is? Maybe we need a, a blade test hall that's twice as big as the current one. Or outdoors. <laughs> or outdoors, yeah. And, and yeah. where are we going to put it? That's someone's headache, but not, not our personal headache. That's turbines. What about robots? Yeah, we're seeing a lot uh, happening in the robotics and the autonomous space. Uh, a bit of news that we had recently was that um, Fugro have developed a new system for deploying ROVs, so remotely operated subsea vessels, and they're planning to deploy these using autonomous vessels. So effectively, you have a ship that carries the ROV to the site and then deploys the ROV so it can go and do its inspections and presumably then come back to port all without having any crew. Well, that's pretty exciting because, you know, it's, again, it, that feeds into push to, to minimise the time spent by personnel offshore. Obviously, there could be cost reduction aspects and hopefully performance improvement as well. So you get quite a lot of bang for your buck out of these, hopefully. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, you're, you're saving on crew and on potentially the space you need to house the crew on the vessel. But also they're looking at, you know, having greener vessels, uh, cleaner that use less fuel or that run off alternative fuels. I guess that's a nice segue to um, the work that we did with the Department for Transport, looking at vessel decarbonisation. 
So there's a nice um, 200-page report for anyone who's keen to have some light reading on effectively roadmaps and on how we might get to decarbonized vessels for um, servicing offshore wind. One other thing on the technology side that you've mentioned was maybe um, increasing array cable voltages from 66 kV. And uh, so I don't think we've we've heard anything concrete about um, making moves in that direction, but I think we're still confident that as turbines continue to get bigger, um, especially as we move towards 20 megawatt turbines, there's going to be a more sustained focus maybe using, you know, 132 kV as an array cable, just because you'll, you need at least that voltage to get, you know, a decent number of turbines on each string. So it's not just grid restraints, but also the array cables between turbines that are becoming a restraint without that technology. Yeah, and, and ultimately it'll, it'll become a kind of bit of techno-economic analysis to look at, you know, break-evens and how to optimise from a, a site perspective, as well as, like you said, how you feed the grid. So that covers off what you'd written about in your blog, Tom, but there's something pretty significant happening almost on our doorsteps here in Glasgow in November this year. Do you want to talk a bit about COP26, anything that you hope to see come from that? First, it would be great to have people actually being able to meet in person. That always helps, not just with the discussions, but also there's, as far as I know, there's some restrictions on what kind of agreements can be made and signed virtually. So it'd be great to have people actually in the room who can make these these big decisions. It's exciting that the UK is hosting it and effectively leading this year. And what we've seen already this year has been some fairly big commitments from big countries like China is committed to zero carbon by 2060, uh, or at least net zero. So, yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot of positive steps, but I'd be interested to see what, what's proposed. A lot of people are saying that, that the Paris Agreement, while it's been good, doesn't go far enough to limit global warming. And so in terms of the, the UK, I mean, from my point of view, we'd like to see um, more of a joined up approach, even though we're, we're now officially not part of the EU. Um, I think it's important that we continue collaborative efforts because each, each country operating on their own is, is one thing. But um, I think it's when everyone comes together that they're going to have more impact. So I'd kind of like to see a lot more um, coordinated actions coming out of of COP26 rather than just individual country commitments. Yeah, that's right. And actually, it ties into what I said previously about this Department for Transport work on on decarbonising vessels. It's a real collaborative effort with nations around the North Sea. We want to come up with one or two solutions that can supply the whole sector, the whole North Sea, rather than each country or each market or each developer coming up with its own solution to decarbonize vessels. Um, there's definitely efficiencies from you know everything running on, let's say, hydrogen, for example. Hopefully one firm thing that comes from that is, um, so the Department for Transport are actually hoping to organize an international declaration, um, a signing event at COP26, which should commit all the offshore wind industry stakeholders to Operation Zero, it's being called which is an industry-wide maritime decarbonisation initiative. So we kind of hope that this will be the catalyst for the wider maritime industry taking similar action. And I think that can be a great example for offshore wind leading the way on another key aspect of of net zero. Thanks for listening to our latest episode. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.